The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 5. You know, I've probably mentioned this here before, but I, not too long ago I read something. Somebody said, read the Bible until it takes root in you. Well, that's the way it is. It's not different from Bernard. It's just a different source <coughs> leading to, to tran- true transcendence, leading to prayer and not idolatry. Those are the two alternatives, or I would say prayer and madness, because all forms of idolatry are short-lived in our world. Their half-life is shorter and shorter. That's why the fads, you know, the fads used to be generational. Now they they last uh, one week. Uh, idolatry is is a losing game. And the and the only alternative, I think, to um, to pray, I would say, the alternative. I mean, see, this is part of what I would like to do is I would like to demonstrate that something as conventional and as uh, unregarded in our world as prayer is the only alternative to madness. But in any case, Bernard is not reading the Bible until it takes root in him. He's trying desperately to read Byron until it takes root in him. But he says, alas, it falls flat. It peters out. I cannot get up steam enough to carry me over the transition. My true self breaks off from my assumed one. And if I begin to rewrite it, she will feel Bernard is posing as a literary man. Bernard is thinking of his biographer, parentheses, which is true. No, I will write the letter tomorrow directly after breakfast. And shortly afterwards he says, Why, I ask, can I not finish the letter that I am writing? For my room is always scattered with unfinished letters. Well, okay. Neville comes in. And Neville always wants to to burst Bernard's balloon. Because, for one thing, it, it is an alternative to bursting his own. But also because... He resents Bernard going off on this, on this, these flights when he could be having a nice conversation with Neville instead. So Neville shows up to do this. I have a person, a little personal example of this. I don't know if this fits, but it's kind of funny. I thought, I mean, it was one of those things, you know. Over the Christmas holidays, we went to a neighborhood party, and a, one of the, one of my neighbors was talking about going on one of these men's groups weekends you know with drums and so they they all went out to the to the hills and beat these drums and howled at the moon or something until the wee hours of the morning and he was saying well you know it's pretty amazing you know you get together and you sort of get into the rhythm really it's the same thing sort of get into this thing he says it's quite you know and it was okay i mean we were just having a fun conversation and i said to him uh well did anybody sneak into the restroom on the way back and floss their teeth before they went to bed. <laughs> and he 
he said, what? <laughs> but <laughs> it was just my little way <laughs> trying to bring it, you know. Anyway, so this is what Neville does with, with Bernard, you know. He just, here's Bernard going off on this Byron thing, and he just, so he walks into the room, and he picks up, notice this, by the way, Neville walks into the room, he picks up Bernard's copy of Byron's Don Juan. And he looks at it and he says, you've been reading Byron. You have been marking the passages, because he's underlined these passages, you have been marking the passages that seem to approve your own character. I find marks against all those sentences which seem to express a sardonic yet passionate nature. A moth-like impetuosity dashing itself against hard glass. <laughs> You remember, Bernard had said, why can I never finish my letters? <laughs> this is some invisible barrier. <laughs> I can't become, I can't become Byron. You know? Now, Paul said, I live now no longer I, but Christ lives in me. So Neville says, look what you've been doing. You've been reading this. Neville continues, you thought as you drew your pencil there, I too throw off my cloak like that. Yet, Byron never made tea as you do, who fill the pot so that when you put the lid on, the tea spills over. <laughs> there is a brown pool on the table. It is running among your books and papers. Now you mop it up clumsily with your pocket handkerchief. You then stuff your pocket handkerchief back into your pocket. That is not Byron. That is you. <laughs> that is so essentially you that if I think of you in 20 years' time when we are both famous, gouty, and intolerable, it will be that that I remember. <laughs> so Neville is really outraged at this point. He says, once you were Tolstoy's young man. Now you are Byron's young man. Perhaps you will be Meredith's young man. When, then you will visit Paris on the Easter vacation and come back wearing a black tie, some detestable Frenchman whom nobody's ever heard of. And then I will drop you. <laughs> I can only take so much of this. What's Virginia Woolf doing? What is she doing? I mean, Virginia Woolf is, is not only an accomplished novelist, she's a serious novelist. She's not trying to entertain us. She's trying to reveal the truth. It's amazing. You know, John Calvin said, everybody's somebody's fool. Whose fool are you? Playing off on Paul's idea of being a fool for Christ. Everybody's somebody's fool. Whose fool are you? That's really what it comes down to. Then Neville gives himself away. He says, I hate your greasy handkerchiefs. You will stain your copy of Don Juan. So you see, Neville isn't angry with Bernard for impersonating Byron. He's angry with him for impersonating Byron ineptly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's it. He says, you didn't pull it off. You spilled the tea, you mopped it up, and you're going to stain your copy of Don Juan. You don't want to do that. You see, that's a holy writ. But then 
Neville goes off. Bernard starts to think about Neville. And he says, I see him in my mind's eye. And he said, here's what he sees. He goes back to his room. He sits down. He stretches out his hand for his copybook and writes feverishly long lines of poetry in the manner of whomever he admires most at the moment. Same thing. And then we get a picture of Neville doing precisely that. And here's what Neville says. Now begins to rise in me the familiar rhythm. See? Now begins to rise in me the familiar rhythm. Words that have lain dormant now lift, now toss their crest, fall and rise and fall and rise again. I am a poet. Yes, surely I am a great poet. I see it all. I feel it all. I am inspired. My eyes fill with tears. Yet even as I feel this, I lash my frenzy higher and higher. It foams. It becomes artificial, insincere. Just like Bernard. So that's the psychological profile of Jenny and Rose. Little, little snatches of, of the psychological profile of really Jenny, mostly Jenny and Bernard and Neville, but to some extent Rhoda as well. Okay. And the other figures are all caught up in their versions of it. But the center of the novel is, the, is a going-away dinner for Percival. And Percival is the one to whom they all look for some kind of stability. And the door opens. This is the one of the leitmotifs. The door opens and who's coming and who's coming. Finally, everybody's arrived and, and uh, Percival comes and sits next to Susan. He loves Susan. And as soon as he comes, everything is... Their, their sort of bitchiness and cantankerousness and cattiness evaporates because he's there. And several, there are several commentaries on this. One is from Bernard. He says, We who yelped like jackals biting at each other's heels now assume the sober and confident air of soldiers in the presence of their captain." Neville says, the reign of chaos is over. He has imposed order. So there's, there is a kind of order that happens when the idol is present. In the same way that uh, an entertainment personality who's an idol, there's a kind of order that comes over those who are arrayed around him or her, the fans. There's a kind of unanimity that's generated by those who are all looking at the idol. But what kind of order is it? Virginia Woolf gives us a metaphor for it, which is absolutely incredible. Now, this is a metaphor that applies to Jenny, but it applies just before Percival shows up and becomes the center of everybody's attention. And I think we have... I think we're invited to read the metaphor used for Jenny in terms of the, of the centering of the community around Percival in a few minutes. Jenny walks into the social, to the social scene of those waiting for Percival to arrive. And here's how Susan describes it. She says, There is Jenny. She stands in the door. Everything seems stayed. The waiter stops. 
The diner's at the table by the door. Look. She seems to center everything. Around her, tables, lines of doors, windows, ceilings, ray themselves like rays around the star in the middle of a smashed window pane. Now, how's that for a metaphor of order and disorder at the same time? People have said this is not a novel, but a long poem in narrative form. And that's not quite true, but I think it's very, it's poetic in the sense that you get these Melville-like metaphors that are just incredible, that bring together these opposites. And this is undoubtedly one of them. When you try to order things, the only possible order, that real order that can come to this mimetic crisis is true transcendence. You know, Buber talks about, Buber has a phrase in Ayn Dao where he talks about uh, the, the, mo- the deepest kind of human, real human intimacy occurs when, Buber says, our parallel lines of relations meet. What he means by that is where people are, have as their primary relationship God and as their secondary relationship, each other. So that their primary lines of relations, which are parallel, they're going straight up, but they meet in the divine. And Buber says, it's under those circumstances that we can meet each other in a way that we cannot meet each other in any other circumstance. And if you take the transcendent away and we turn to each other, it doesn't work. It begins to pathologize. Well, every attempt to to achieve order in this world that doesn't have a true transcendent will just sow more chaos. And Jenny in this little uh, episode here and Percival in the larger one represent what Girard calls deviated transcendency. Just another word for idolatry. And there's a kind of order that occurs at that moment. But it isn't real order. And this metaphor is incredible. She centers everything like the rays around the star in the middle of a smashed window pane. Lewis, who understands the ordering power of Percival better than anybody else, Lewis is less caught up in all of this than anybody else. He's caught up in it because he's modern. We all caught up in it. But he's less caught up in it than anybody else. And so he's able to see. And he says, it is Percival who makes us aware that these attempts to say, I am this, I am that, are false. Something has been left out from fear. Something has been altered from vanity. We have come to accentuate differences. From the desire to be separate, we have laid stress upon our faults and what is particular to us. So Lewis understands that there's a kind of hysteria going on, everybody trying to keep themselves defined vis-a-vis others, and that Percival has, rela- have, has, has offered an opportunity to relax that business for a few minutes. However he goes, Percival goes off to India, and now he's gone. And, moreover, he gets there and is, is killed. So he's gone forever. As soon as he leaves, 
the disease comes back worse than it was before, which is a clear sign that it wasn't any real alternative to it. Susan and Jenny, so here comments from Susan, Jenny, and Lewis. Susan says, soon as Percival leaves, Susan says, it is hate, it is love. That is the furious, cold, black stream that makes us dizzy if we look down into it. That cold, black stream, by the way, is what Shakespeare looked down into to write his plays. It's not real love we're talking about here, but the kind of what passes for love in a hypermimetic situation cannot be distinguished from hate. And if you want a little seminar on that, Jenny gives one right after that. She says, It is love, it is hate. Hate such as Susan feels for me because I kissed Lewis once in the garden. Because, equipped as I am, I make her think when she comes in, my hands are red and hide them. Our hatred is almost indistinguishable from our love. Now, who's saying it? We have to remember. Virginia Woolf is saying it. Jenny is saying it in the novel. But Virginia Woolf is trying to, per to perform a diagnostic on a particular social scene, which is uh, specifically modern. Our hatred is almost indistinguishable from our love. That's what all of Shakespeare's plays are about. There's comedies as well as his tragedies. Lewis has the final say. He says, Now the circle breaks. Now the current flows. Now we rush faster than before. Now passions rise and pound us with their waves. Pain and jealousy, envy and desire, and something deeper than they are, stronger than love and more subterranean. Now, if somebody were to say to Gerard, uh, Gerard, what do you mean by mimetic desire? You could quote what Lewis says here. That, which reminds me, by the way, of the thing from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra when uh, Antony and Caesar tried to affect a, a rapprochement by, by Antony marrying Caesar's sister and Enobarbus, Anthony's uh, lieutenant, says, that which is the strength of their amity shall prove the immediate author of their variance. And it doesn't exactly apply to this, in the same way to this, to this story, but it does apply to Percival's effect on people. He comes in, he restores order, but when he leaves, it's more unstable and disorderly than when he, than when he came. This is where I want to I want to come back to the observation Tillich made that, that uh, personality is impossible without faith. But he says it's possible for the faith to be an idolatrous faith, in which case the act of faith entails the loss of the center of the personality. And he says the, ec the ecstatic character of even an idolatrous faith can hide its consequences only for a certain time, but finally it breaks into the open. And so there is a, a kind of a faith that they all have in Percival. That he restores order, but it's temporary, and once the, uh, the ecstatic character of the event uh, vanishes, things are worse than they were before. Every attempt to stabilize the social scene that's... that's 
how should I say, every attempt to stabilize a, a destabilizing hypermimetic social situation that doesn't in some way begin to obey the first and greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, won't work. That sounds like a tent revivalist, no doubt. But I think it's true, and I think that's the I think that's the anthropological power uh, that is in the New Testament. We haven't assimilated it yet. Denis de Rougemont, in his book, Love in the Western World, argues that there are two religions vying for the upper hand in the West, Christianity and passionate romance. Several of the characters in this book resort to something you might call romantic spirituality at this moment when the instability of the self uh, presents itself and, they, and the uh, search for an alternative centering process is, uh, becomes urgent. For example, when Percival leaves and Neville, brokenhearted at his departure, has to try to pick up the pieces and carry on, he says, Now the cab comes... Now Percival goes, what can we do to keep him? How fan the fire so that it blazes forever? And that's the romantic question always, how to fan the fire so that it blazes forever. So a little while later, Neville says this, and he's speaking in a way to one of his homosexual lovers. He says, if one day I see you in some looking glass, perhaps looking after another, if the telephone buzzes and buzzes in your empty room, I shall then, after unspeakable anguish, I shall then, for there is no end to the folly of the human heart, I shall then seek another, find another you. And, of course, it's not the human heart so much as it is the whole problem of mimetic desire. Jenny says something very similar, briefer, but to the same effect, I think. When she says, Like a mountain goat leaping from crag to crag, I do not settle long anywhere. I do not attach myself to any one person in particular. And so she just goes from affair to affair, from romance to romance, from one excitement, exciting moment uh, to the next. And that's what I've in the past called psychological promiscuity. The sexual aspect of it is all, uh, often there, but that's not the part of it that is so destabilizing fundamentally. That's incidental to the psychological instability. But still in all, the sexual is important in the sense that sexuality in a world that is uh, without transcendence, sexuality is often used as a, as a way of simulating transcendence. And in a world, I would say this, in a world that when sexuality is resorted to as a semblance of transcendence, inevitably sexuality drifts towards violence. And I'm not a psychiatrist and so on, and I wouldn't know how to necessarily trace that whole thing. But I would say 
with, without reservation, without qualification, that when sexuality is used as a vehicle for transcendence, it inevitably drifts towards violence. And there's a hint of that in Jenny's speeches about the subject. She says, I leap like a goat uh, from crag to crag, never settle long, never stay with one person, never attach myself with one person. And then later she says, Jug, 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 I sing like the nightingale, whose melody is crowded in the too narrow passage of her throat. I'll go on with this quotation in a second, but the nightingale, you know, the myth of the nightingale is that it's the woman who has been raped who has turned into a nightingale. The literary image of a nightingale, particularly when associated with with the song of jug, 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 is the image of someone who has been raped. And Virginia Woolf knows that, and the reason she knows it is because she learned it from T.S. Eliot, and I'm going to show you that in just a second. So she says, Jenny says, jug, jug, jug like the nightingale. Now, she says, I hear the crash and rending of boughs and the crack of antlers as if the beast of the forest were all hunting, all rearing high and plunging down among the thorns. One has pierced me. One is driven deep within me. And the question there is, how much of that is sexual and how much of that is violent? Can you distinguish the violence from the sexuality in that passage? Not altogether. Clearly, you can't altogether. And I think, I I call attention to that passage because in a world which has begun to use sexuality as its vehicle for some kind of Uh, simulated transcendence, sexuality will drift towards violence. And all you have to do is tune in to some of the things that are happening in popular culture right now to see that the line between violence and sexuality is blurring very rapidly. Eliot knew it when he wrote The Wasteland. At this point, I want to start calling attention to to the innumerable echoes of Eliot's poetry in Virginia Woolf's novel. Someday I want to do an exhaustive study of that if I have time. They're much more than I thought on first reading. And obviously this, this jug, jug, jug one is an obvious one. For in The Wasteland, Eliot talks about, Eliot has this figure through his poetry called Sweeney. And Sweeney is, and Sweeney is the natural man. He's a, he's a kind of sensual man who... Uh, f- ends up at the whorehouse. In the wasteland, Sweeney goes to the whorehouse run by Mrs. Porter and, quote, her daughters. And here's what Eliot says about that. He says in the wasteland, quote, At my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. Jug, 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 so rudely forced. And again, the jug, jug, jug is is a symbol for the nightingale, which is a symbol for rape. So in the background of this is an act, rape, which is violent and sexual at the same time. I want to pursue the connection between Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot further, but first... I want to make a brief stop at, and take a look, you will think I'm crazy, at Andy Warhol. Not really at Andy Warhol. I want to look at Andy Warhol through the eyes of Robert Hughes. 
in the early 80s, Hughes wrote an article about Andy Warhol in, in the uh, New York Times Book Review, which I think will give us a perspective from which to judge some things going on in this novel. Looking at Andy Warhol makes the figures in Virginia Woolf's novel seem like the farmer and his wife in American Gothic. You know. But nevertheless, it's clear that, the, that Warhol and his acolytes were suffering from precisely the same disease that the figures in this novel uh, are suffering from. So here I want to take a, just a minute to go into that. First, I'll start by quoting Girard. Girard says, satellites gravitate around planets, planets around stars. This image of the world of the novel as a cosmic system recurs frequently in Proust and brings with it the image of the novelist astronomer who measures the orbits and derives the laws that govern them. I think that's marvelous. Who measures the orbits and derives the laws that govern them. So, in a way, Hughes is doing that with Andy Warhol. And, of course, the same image is there as well, the image of orbiting in satellites and so on, but in a, in a uh, disor disorderly way. Hughes says, speaking of these figures that surrounded Warhol, he says, they were all cultural space debris, drifting fragments from a variety of 60s subcultures, transvestite, Drug, S&M, rock, poor little rich, criminal, street, and all the permutations. Orbiting in smeary ellipses around their unmoved mover. End quote. You begin to see how this, the structure here is similar to the structure in this novel. Hughes says, if Warhol's, quote, superstars, as he called them, had possessed talent, discipline, or stamina, they would not have needed him, but then he would not have needed them. They gave him his ghostly aura of power. If he, if he withdrew his gaze, his carefully allotted permissions and recognitions, they would cease to exist. So it was a symbiotic relationship. And there was a hint of religion about it all, and I want to return return a second to the religious dimension of all this. Hughes says the factory, that's the name of the place where Warhol uh, and his group uh, were located. He says the factory resembled a sect, a parody of Catholicism enacted, not accidentally, by people who were or had been Catholic. In it, the rituals of dandyism could speed up to gibberish and show what they had become a hunger for approval and forgiveness. And this hunger was satisfied in the only, Hughes says, was satisfied in the only way that American culture knows how to satisfy it, that is with publicity. So the hunger for approval and forgiveness is satisfied with publicity. Well, think about it. Okay. In one place in, the no, in Virginia Woolf's novel, Neville says, that is Percival lounging on the cushions, monolithic, in giant repose. 
Remember at first they were all looking for somebody with composure, somebody not caught up in the mimetic uh, titillation. So he sees, he says, that's Percival lounging on the cushions, monolithic in gigantic repose. No, says Neville. It is only one of his satellites imitating his monolithic, gigantic repose. He alone is unconscious of their tricks. So Neville sees what... This really is at the heart of everybody's attraction to Percival, his monolithic, gigantic repose. Why are they attracted to it? Because none of them can achieve it. And so they're totally fascinated. Now, Percival has achieved it because he's a very dull, simple guy. He's a jock. He keeps all of his mimetic activity within the field of play between the whistles. And outside of that, he just kind of chews on a, you know, the, the, the uh, blade of grass and uh, daydreams and wonders when the next game's going to be. And he just doesn't get into it. He's totally mimetic, and at the center of his life, he's, it's a mimetic activity, athletics. Remember, Neville says, I just can't keep my interest on the ball all day. That's my only problem. And, but Percival doesn't have that problem. So, but otherwise, he's monolithic, gigantic repose. And everybody else is caught up in 24-hour-a-day mimetic tangles, and they're fascinated by it. Now, in Andy Warhol's world, there was nobody with monolithic, gigantic repose. And so if somebody was going to experience the attention and adulation that Percival received in this novel, he would have to simulate monumental, gigantic repose. And the simulation of monumental, gigantic repose is what we call dandyism. It's striking the pose of being the one who doesn't care what other people think. So Hughes says, to enter the turbulence of this crazy world in which uh, Andy Warhol lived, he says, to enter the turbulence, one might only need to be born, a fact noted by Warhol in his one lasting quip, in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. But to retain it, to stay drenched in the glittering spray of promotional culture, one needed other qualities. One was an air of detachment, monolithic, gigantic repose. An air of detachment. The dandy must not look into the lens. You see? The other was an acute sense of nuance, an eye for the eddies and trends of fashion which would regulate the other senses and appetites and so give detachment its point. Diligent and frigid, Warhol had both to a striking degree. Now I want to go back to this idea of, the, of this uh, nuance that gives detachment its point. What uh, Hughes means here, I think, is that if... Warhol's detachment was going to have its most profound effect. He had also to be extremely sensitive to where everybody's desire was going so that 
he could show that he was disinterested in precisely that. <laughs> and once, once the contagion of mimetic desire begins to focus on something, to look up and find that there's someone who's not interested in that is like wat watching somebody walk on water. I mean, it just seems like it's absolutely impossible. How could he not be? You see? And to make the thing even more convoluted, the thing, the, the thing everybody was interested in was publicity. So Andy Warhol had to be uninterested in publicity and to sort of just walk down the street uninterested in publicity, conspicuously so, so that half a block down the street the cameras were clicking away. That's raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power. So the key was detachment and knowing precisely what to be detached from, namely what everybody else was being attracted to. So the business of not caring what other people think is very important as a as a manifestation, which it's a it's a it's a tracer, it's a it's a uh, it's a a trigger. In our world, there's only one virtue in our world, and that's not caring what other people think. I shouldn't say that, but it, there's something like that. The key virtue in our world is not caring what other people think. Not caring what other people think works like an aphrodisiac on people suffering from the vertigo of hypermimesis. In a world swept into a mimetic maelstrom, not caring what other people think is the key to having them think highly of you. <laughs> At a moment when, to quote from Hughes, half America seemed to be immersed in some tedious and noisy form of self-expression, Warhol understood that, cra quote, craziness no longer suggested uniqueness. Warhol's bland translucency as of frosted glass was much more intriguing. We're getting to the heart of it now and to where it really becomes madness. And the raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power becomes so obvious. But if you go back to the novel and you, you read a passage like this, Jenny says, Look, there is my body in that looking glass. How solitary, how shrunk, how aged. I am no longer young. I am no longer part of the procession. Soon I shall look into faces and I shall see them seek some other face. Therefore, I will powder my face and redden my lips. It's so conventional. It's, 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 the, way, it's the way it's done, you know. We have to somehow keep it going. But Warhol realized so much, so much better what could be done is that you could become uninterested in attention in a world in which everybody else is and that would itself become the trigger for it. What I'm trying to show with the Warhol aside is that the disease that Virginia Woolf's analyzing here has gotten progressively worse and progressively more convoluted. I want to take a minute to look at the effect of Eliot on this novel and of the religious innuendos in this novel, or at least in this part of the novel. We'll come back to them next week when we conclude. But to do so, I want to start with something that Rhoda uh, does and says. 
after Percival leaves, Rhoda goes out to buy a pair of stockings. You remember after Percival leaves, Susan says, it is hate, it is love, that is the furious cold black stream that makes us dizzy if we look down into it. And Jenny says something very similar to that. Well, Rhoda simply goes out to buy a pair of stockings. But you remember stockings. It's a very important tracer in this novel. Stockings is a metaphor for the competition between the three women in the novel. They're always pulling on their stockings like the other one and so on and so forth. So she simply goes out and when Jenny gets ready to for the social event, it always has to do with how the stockings are looking. So afterwards, Rhoda's completely unaware of this this dark stream, you know, that that uh, that's, uh, Susan is looking down into. She just goes to get a pair of stockings. No doubt she thinks that the her desire for stockings is a spontaneous desire. Oh, I just need a pair of stockings. She goes to get a pair of stockings. She's in the middle of the transaction, buying stockings, and suddenly the the waters part or the, the scales fall from her eyes and she looks down into that stream. She's buying the stockings and suddenly she says, I see envy, jealousy, hatred, and spite scuttle like crabs over the sand. These are our companions now. Suddenly she realizes, she thought she was just buying stockings, but really it was part of this whole drama that was going on. And at that moment, she says, I think of Lewis reading the sporting column of an evening newspaper, afraid of ridicule, a snob. Now, it's interesting. Eliot haunts this, this novel as a kind of what Gerard calls negative imitation. There is a sense in which Lewis, who is the Eliot figure in here, represents something that, the, that neither the novel nor the novelist want to deal with, but they can't keep it away enough. So, and it, it clearly is Eliot's Christian conversion. You know, Eliot had been part of this circle, and he was the one that, that you know, went into the Church of England, and they couldn't believe it. I mean, he was the, in a way, he was the bright star of this crowd, and suddenly he's converting to Christianity. And it left them speechless. Well, so I want to look at some of the influences that Eliot has exerted on this novel, but there's obvious one already. Because Rhoda says, I think of Lewis reading the sporting column of an evening newspaper, afraid of ridicule a snob. Remember the passage I quoted from The Portrait of a Lady? The Eliot figure says, you will see me any morning in the park reading the comics and the sporting page. Particularly, I remark, an English countess goes upon the stage, a Greek was murdered at a Polish dance, another bank defaulter has confessed. I keep my countenance. I remain self-possessed. And Susan and Rhoda says, he's a snob. Well, I, he's not a snob. But he seems a snob if you're a snob. Only snobs recognize snobs. There's no... If you're not a snob, you never recognize snob. Or if you do, it doesn't matter. You don't won't even bother to label, label them as such because it doesn't matter. But here's Lewis in the novel. Lewis says, I will read in my book that is propped against the bottle of Worcester sauce. It contains poetry. You, all of you, ignore it. 
What the dead poets said you have forgotten, and I cannot translate it to you so that its binding power ropes you in and makes it clear to you that you are aimless and that the rhythm is cheap and worthless. Remember rhythm? The rhythm is cheap and worthless. And so remove that degradation which, if you are unaware of your aimlessness, pervades you, making you senile even while you are young. Prufrock is the one who's senile even while he's young. To translate that poem, says Lewis, to translate that poem so that it is easily read is to be my endeavor. Virginia Woolf is writing this before Eliot writes his later poetry, but already she sees, it's really prophetic in some ways, she already sees where Eliot is going. What the dead poets said you have forgotten, to translate that poem so that it is easily read is to be my endeavor. Now that was written before the following lines were written, but compare them. This is in Little Gidding. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. And these lines from East Coker. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss, for us there is only the trying. Finally, um, Bernard. And Bernard, I want to suggest, and I might as well do it here. I've suggested that Bernard is Virginia Woolf in this novel. There's one place that brings that out, I think, pretty persuasively, and that is where he is speaking of himself in the third person. He's speaking of himself as his biographer will speak of him. And I think that could be read as her critics will speak of her or of this novel. And he says of himself, calling himself he, he, quote, joined the sensibility of a woman with the logical sobriety of a man. And I think it's Virginia Woolf indicating where she is to be located, to some extent at least, in this novel. Okay, now, so here are words coming out of that character, Bernard's mouth. He says, When I am alone, I fall into lethargy. When Lewis is alone, he sees with astonishing intensity and will write some words that will outlast us all. And I think that's true, by the way. And I think that if this novel has any hope of immortality, it will be as a footnote to Eliot's work. And I think it deserves to be. I want to just wrap up, but I want to wrap up on, the, on a religious note and return to this next week. The mimetic crisis comes about because of the lack of transcendence. Only a return to transcendence can solve it, even though that sounds like the corniest thing in the world. It's true. I think it's true. So there's only a religious solution. There's a hint in the novel that the novel and the novelist know that but are unable to, to avail themselves of it. Jenny, for example, hints of a religious outcome. Now, this is the Jenny who has just realized that she's getting older. She says, that woman with the pearl pagodas hanging from her ears was the pure flame that lit the life of one of our statesmen. Now, since his death, she sees ghosts, tells fortunes, and has adopted a coffee-colored youth whom she calls the Messiah. This could be, in Eliot's poetry, this could be Madame Sesostris. 
you know, in, in the wasteland. And then right after that, Jenny says, that man with the drooping mustache, like a cavalry officer, lived the life of utmost debauchery, it is, it is all in some memoir, until one day he met a stranger in a train who converted him between Edinburgh and Carlisle by reading the Bible. So some hint that the way out is religious. Well, here's what Bernard says on the subject. Remember, I started today with Bernard saying the, do- the drop falls. And, and what, can, what can we do? Well, just wait till another one forms. So here he is again. He says, the drop falls. Another stage has been reached. Stage upon stage. And why should there be an end of stages? And that's, the, what, that's in, what's implicit in this, the thing that people are doing now on the protein self, Robert J. Lifton and others, on the protein self, just constantly changing. Why not? Bernard says, why not? And where do they lead, he says? To what conclusion? And then he says, in these dilemmas, the devout consult those violet-sashed and sensual-looking gentry who are trooping past me. The clergy. See, when, he says, when the devout face this problem, they consult these they find out about the tradition. They, they consult these emissaries of the tradition. But for ourselves, says Bernard, we resent teachers. Let a man get up and say, Behold, this is the truth, and instantly I perceive a sandy cat filching a piece of fish in the background. Look, you have forgotten the cat, I say. And that's so modern. Isn't that modern? I mean, the very act of somebody saying this is the truth immediately, we just know we have to, you see? And that's not altogether bad in a way, that kind of skepticism. But if it leads to paralysis. So he says, So Neville at school in the dim chapel raged at the sight of the doctor's crucifix. And later on the novel, Neville picks up that theme and says, I hate men who wear crucifixes on the left side of their waistcoats. I hate ceremonies and lamentations and the sad figure of Christ trembling beside another sad figure. So the one thing that, for, that Eliot found as an alternative to this, Bernard and Neville find absolutely anathema. So here's Bernard. Bernard says... I, who am always distracted, at once make up a story and so obliterate the angles of the crucifix. Now, this is Virginia Woolf speaking through her voice in the novel, saying what storytell- what the effect of storytelling is and even what the purpose of storytelling is. At least that's the hovering implication. I at once make up a story and so obliterate the angles of the crucifix. I have made up thousands of stories. I have filled innumerable notebooks with, with phrases to be used when I have found the true story, the one story to which all the phrases refer, but I have never found that story. 
Now that is pretty amazing. The purpose of all this storytelling is to obliterate, or the effect at least, is to obliterate the angles of the crucifix. And I have made up thousands of stories. I have filled innumerable notebooks with phrases to be used when I have found the true story, the one story to which all the phrases refer, but I have never yet found that story. It might be the one that's obliterated by the storytelling. I'm going to next week bring something from Don Quixote, which is exactly this, which is Don Quixote recognizing precisely the same thing at the, in the beginning of the 17th century. Bernard says, in dilemmas such as these, the devout consult those violet-sashed and sensual-looking gentry who are trooping past me. But for ourselves, we resent teachers. Now, if one of those violet-sashed, uh, sensual-looking gentry had been Jean Sullivan, and it could have been, Sullivan was a priest as well as a novelist and a, and a scholar and, uh, and some, something of a mystic, if it had been John Sullivan, and if Bernard could have gone and pulled him by the sash and said, hey, tell me what you have to tell me. Tell me what Augustine meant when he said, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. If he had done that, instead of resenting all teachers, he could have availed himself of the following sensibility. In his journal, Sullivan says, and I want you just to compare the kind of meekness and profundity of this with the kind of stuff that's going on in this novel. Sullivan says, It had to be mother who passed on the heritage to me, she who had nothing else to leave. Mother knew by heart the stories of Abraham, Moses, Ruth, and Tobit, the Psalms, each parable, the curses in chapter 23 of Matthew, it had to have been my mother. Which is true of me too, by the way. And so Sullivan says, Miserable scribe that I am, there's an instinct in me stronger than my scruples as an ex-professor. There's a tone of voice I'd like to transmit. One my mother passed on to me without knowing it. What I've been trying to talk about is the vanishing of transcendence in our world and its consequences. We are religious people by nature, and when we don't have the experience of transcendence, when our lives are not lived out in the context of something transcendent to us and to our history, uh, then we simply live out our religious lives in the social order, and it causes all kinds of craziness in the social order. So genuine transcendence, or what Girard in one of his earlier books calls vertical transcendence, as opposed to deviated horizontal transcendence, vertical transcendence is the surrender to the other, to the transcendent other, to, to God, and involves religious devotion, whereas deviated transcendence gets us involved in the fascinations and fixations of the sociodrama, the, the mechanisms of which uh, are those of mimetic desire. So that's sort of the background for taking a look at this novel. This novel really is, is about religion. There's almost, there's very little 
in the novel that's explicitly about religion, but in fact it's about religion because it's about what happens to our religious lives in a world which is by and large deprived of any experiential sense of transcendence. And so I would say one of the ways to read this novel is as a prayer book. I would say this novel is a prayer book. And the forms of prayer that one finds in it are as diverse as the forms of prayer one finds in conventional Christian religious life. Namely, there are devotional prayers, there are prayers of praise and adoration, there are prayers of petition, prayers of lamentation, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of desolation, cries for consolation, but they're all addressed to each other. So let's read it as a religious text, as though we are archaeologists who have found this strange going back from some future date, having come into this curious epoch towards the end of the 20th century, and we've found this document, and we realize right away it's a religious document. But a religious document uh, taking, uh, uh, written by and for people who were suffering from a particular blind spot. Well, so I'll start out with a quotation from the Pope. The Pope said, In our prayer, we must be careful to safeguard divine transcendence and to purify our hearts of false images. 